0: Well, I have a testimony, and that is I'm one of the don'ts when it comes to the singing part. You know, those of you who have the gift of singing, God bless you. It was wonderful make a joyful noise, and I'm on the joyful noise, noise side of things with that. And so that, that is my one testimony. I'm glad that Danny didn't tell the story because this, this song along with, uh, uh, what is it, Wonderful, Beautiful Savior, um, I can't get through that song every, every time we sing can't get through it, through it, talking about it. <clears throat> I hope you let the power of those, of those words, sink in. In this last song, an oldie but a goodie, I mean, like a hundred plus years old, "Man of Sorrows." But we could jazz up the tune, I suppose, a little bit. But you, how do you, how do you change the words? Uh, and if, as they used to say, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Okay, just a thinking of what, what Christ has done for us. Um, I want to pick up where I kind of left off on Tuesday. Uh, the title of this, I, sh- I should have told you that on Tuesday, is An Anniversary Worth Remembering, because there's some anniversaries that are, that are, frankly, are not worth remembering. Uh, I have one coming up the 28th of, uh, of uh, March, which uh, I, as you can tell, I remember it, because that's the day, my best day, probably my wife's worst day, because that's, uh, that's when we said I do. And, uh, and you know, seriously, seriously, that there's a story behind that with a professor from college, and and uh, I, she asked, yeah, how, how that happened, and I said my best day, her worst day, and uh, so it'll be 30, 36 years, uh, the 28th of March. So there are some anniversaries worth remembering, and I think this is one of them also, the 500th anniversary of, of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, I do have a handle. I don't think I have enough for everybody, so we may have to make some more of those. But uh, real, real. Half of me is Norwegian, the other half is German. So the, uh, the Norwegian side says, keep it pretty simple. What does the term sola mean? Uh, we can, yeah. Uh, those aren't the notes, but they're, they're going to be towards the end. So, Gail, yeah, if you want to hand those out. And I've got a master, so we, could, we can do them later, too. Uh, simply alone or only? Right, that's pretty simple. Uh, the term sola is alone. So if you're, uh, you're outstanding in the field, and I, by outstanding, I don't mean that you've won awards. Uh, you don't have a PhD or whatever, but you're out in a field by yourself, you're alone, right? And they say, well, I'm not alone because I got Jesus. I, well, okay, just we'll, we'll leave Jesus out of it and we'll leave the, the deer that are over here in the field just begging to be shot. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave those out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, my soul brother. Uh, but you're out there by yourself. You are alone, correct? And that, that's simply what the term means, alone, on its own, or only, only you, Right? Uh, And and so it's a very simple term. Uh, I think that kind of surprises people periodically. It's it's that simple. So that's the term. So scripture only, faith only, or alone, grace alone, Christ alone. uh, You you get the picture. I I think you probably already knew that. Well, we didn't define the term sola scriptura, so we're going to walk through some of these as well for you. Uh, A little more technical. The Latin, by scripture alone, is the theological doctrine which holds that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. That's that's all we mean. Now, uh, John MacArthur expresses it a little bit more fully. And so, with this, all the truth necessary for salvation spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in scripture. Uh, It's not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in scripture. Again, I mentioned last week trying to fix your car. Uh, you know, how to, how, to, how, to, how to paint the mountains like Jim Dick does or, or a Nancy Glazer does. Uh, that's not in scripture. Okay, it's not there. Um, or how to clean your, clean your dorm room, right? Your, your mama should have taught you that. But scripture is the highest and supreme authority on any matter of which it speaks. So it's what it speaks to, it is the supreme court, if you will, to use a, a term from our legal system. Scripture is therefore the perfect and only or alone standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all that we must believe in order to be saved and do to glorify God. So that's uh, Johnny Mack's take on it. Um, Geyser and McKenzie said this, by this, Protestants mean Scripture alone is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice. It implies a number of things, and we're going to look at those five, five things that they talk about in just a moment. From the the first one being, it is a direct revelation from God. As such, it has divine authority. This is from God. It's God-breathed. It's spoken by God. So it is His Word. And if He's true, we would think whatever He would say would be true, right? Because there's no error in God. If He's everlasting, we would think His Word would be everlasting. If, if, he, if He's incomparable, we would suggest that His Word would be incomparable just from the argument of who God Himself is. The Westminster Confession... Uh, a little little, uh, uh, more full, but here's the second of the five things that Geiser and Mackenzie point out. The sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient. It's all that is necessary for faith and practice. Okay, We're just simply saying it's it's the only source we have, ultimately, for our faith and how we want to live out the Christian life. We'll come back to sufficient uh, later. The authority of Scripture. Not only is it sufficient, but it possesses final authority. Scriptures are the final court of appeal in all doctrinal moral matters. Right? It's not that, not that you can't learn from a pope. It's not that you can't learn from a council. It's not that you can't learn from a confession or a creed, because you most certainly can. But there has to be a standard by which to make sure that what you're reading or wanting to hold to has some final authority or validity. And we would suggest to you that that comes from Scripture. Here's a fourth. It's pers- perspicuous. In other words, it's clear. Again, it doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is perfectly clear, right? Even, even and I just said this in the church history class a few moments ago, even Peter suggests there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. So we, we grant that. But does it mean everything? And does that mean in the orders of faith? how to know God, how to live for God, how to be saved, how to walk in newness of life, which suggests to you that Scripture is very clear about those things. Okay? And so by this, we do not mean, as Catholics often assume, we obtain no help from these other sources because we most certainly can. Right? But we judge them by Scripture and not Scripture by them. That's the difference we hold to. Uh, here's the fifth one. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is the analogy of faith principle. When we have a difficulty in understanding an unclear text, we turn to biblical text. So the clear interprets the not so clear. That's just a common principle. You do that contextually when you're reading a newspaper or you're reading a letter or you're reading instructions how to build something or uh, fix something. You put it in context. And so as we do, we want to find what is very clearly stated and then use that as the basis to interpret the things that go, well, there's some debate on this. Uh, For example, Hebrews Hebrews 6, right? I think off the top of my head, I won't say them all. There's these five different interpretations of Hebrews 6, 4. They can't all be right. They can partially be right, but they can't all be right. They might all be wrong, right? So where do we go? We go to other passages like John 10, right? 1 John 5, to help us understand that passage. And that's all we're saying here, the analogy of Scripture. So, uh, from this web, website, if you want to look at that, Scriptures are materially sufficient and are by their very nature, as being inspired by God, the ultimate authority for the church. Right? This means that there's no portion of that revelation which has been preserved in a form of oral tradition, independent. So we don't, we don't possess oral teaching from the apostles. Now, the first question would be, why would we need it if we have Scripture? Right? Now, it's a nice appeal by somebody who says, well, this has been passed down from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope. To pope and so they're the ones who have it. Well, why, if they have it, why don't they just tell us what it is and be done with it rather than waiting centuries and then coming up with some new teaching that somehow they want us to believe was taught way back in the last 40 days before Jesus ascended to heaven. Okay? So only Scripture, therefore, records for us the apostolic teaching and final revelation. And even the early church would argue for that as well. Another, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura was given the status of the formal cause by Melanchthon and his Lutheran followers, distinguished from the material material cause, sola fide. And so the chief theological issue was the question of the matter of justification, as Sproul points out, right? Touch heavily, though, on the underlying question of authority. So how do you say, how can you say that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? When the church says it's through the sacraments. How how can you say that? Because scripture says so. Oh, but how do you know scripture is true unless you have an infallible interpreter? See how that's going to go? So we come to Sola Scriptura, and it lays the groundwork for us. If this is true, this is infallible, this is the inspired word of God, it should inform us of what God wants us to know on these issues. And when we come to it, we come to verses like John 3.16. We come to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? We come to Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, right? So those passages are very clear. There's nothing obscure in that. And so we can see. So right right at the beginning, the formal, it is the foundation. We come to and say, what does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about how to get right with God? What does it tell me about how, how I stay right in right fellowship with God? Scripture will tell me that. Okay, and again, it's not, not that your brothers and sisters can't help you. It's not that a, a sermon on a Sunday morning or a tape that you're listening on the radio, or whatever it might be, can't, can't speak to your heart, especially, and more importantly, when they're preaching the Word of God. But it's saying even in that, when Brian preaches on Sunday, you know, when, when Ryan preaches, when uh, Jim preaches, you know, Mark over in Wilson, whoever it might be, when they preach, they preach the Word. It's the Word that has power. It helps if the guy can articulate himself, but really it's the word that has the power because it's what the Holy Spirit will use, okay? So what it doesn't mean, and I think we, we should use this somewhat of a clarification also. It has little or nothing to say about DNA structures, microbiology, the rules of Chinese grammar, right? When's the last time you studied Mandarin you know, reading the Bible? I guess if you had a Chinese Bible, you could do that, but, right? This or that scientific truth, for example, may or may not be actually true, whether you can support the scripture or not. Nor does sola scripture claim that everything Jesus the apostles ever taught is preserved in the scripture. John tells us that in, in, in the end of his gospel. He said, more things Jesus wrote, we don't have a, basically, as the old hymn says, if every man was a scribe, and the ocean was filled with ink, and the skies were parchment made, we could not write about all the greatness of God. But John said, but these things have been written so that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and believing in him, you might have eternal life. How simple is that? I didn't didn't tell you everything he said or did, but what I told you here, though, is so that you know he he is who he says he is, and this is how you can know that you have eternal life. There you go. That's really simple, very clear, I might add, right? What else? It's not a claim that the Bible's exhaustive in knowledge or detail. I don't know. Last when was the last time somebody asked you what, what color was Thomas's eyes? Okay. right? Did John have a big full beard? You know, like Kyle. You know, kind of a smaller one like Danny or like or my bro in the back row there. He's got the kind of that clean, tight shaven on him and Danny and Phil back there. Those three guys they got kind of just got a whiskers look. I mean, didn't tell us that. I mean, you go to the Bible to say, well. Did they dress like hipsters I mean, have narrow, narrow skinny jeans? It doesn't tell us that. Well, let me ask you, do you need to know that to be saved? Well, it would really be helpful if I know how to, to dress when I go to heaven. What? <laughs> what? Come on, I mean, you know I'm being facetious, right? It, it, it's not denying God's word has been spoken, examined or tested. That's what Luke said. Listen, Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, I, I've examined, I've looked, I've listened, I've interviewed, I've talked to people. And I'm going to lay down for you. I'm going to lay it between the lines, as the mom and the papas used to say. i will lay it between the lines and explain to you, beginning with here, the life of Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of Man, the Son of God. So we we grant that. It's not denying the Holy Spirit's role in guarding or illuminating or enlightening, enlightening the church. We believe that. But if this is his book, right? He's the author. He's not going to lead you where this book won't take you. And vice versa, right? Because it's his book. So he's going to take you to where he, he wrote for you. Well, let's look at this one. What's our proof? Well, here's just a few. I think they're pretty good. Deuteronomy. As Moses is talking to the children of Israel, right? He says, he says about the law. The Things are laid down. And chapter 32 says, this is your life. This is your life. That you keep these, you live amongst these, you obey this. This is your life. Okay? Not, not in me. Not in Joshua who's going to take over for me. It's not in those who, who came before or who come after. This is your life. You see, you only had five books. I, I get that. But God knew 61 more were coming, right? right? This is your life. Psalm 119. Right? I think that's pretty... Psalm 138, verse 2, Matthew 15, when Jesus talks about tradition. Acts 2.42, and they habitually, continually, what? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Oh, yeah. Not, 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 not to the Pope, but to the apostles' teaching. And where, where, where is that? It's contained here for us now. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all of you know this. After saying in verse 15, but you from infancy have known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. Long long before a pope or council ever came out saying that we interpret Scripture for you, Paul writes to Timothy, one of the last letters he ever wrote, he said, you have known since you were a child the Scriptures that make you wise unto salvation. You can know. Salvation through it. Why? Because all scripture is the very breath of God. Right? And then he tells us these wonderful things about it. What, which is what? It tells you what is right. Correct? It tells you what is true. It tells you what's not right. It tells you how to get right, and it tells you how to stay right. That's those four, you know, doctrine, teaching, correction, training. So the word of God... Because it is God's word, tells you what's right, what's not right. When you do get it wrong, it tells you what's wrong, right? It tells you how to get right, and it tells you how to stay on the right side of things with God. Why? That great verse, verse 17. So the man of God might be what? Equipped, or excuse me, complete, mature, equipped, for every good work. And most of you know that the word for equipped there means thoroughly furnished. If you're not from Montana, you probably still know this, but if you don't, just check it out when you talk about outfitters. You can, you can sign on with an outfitter to come hunting, and some of them all you gotta do is show up with your clothes and your checkbook, but you've already paid them. Your gun, right? And that's it. They got the cabin, they got the food, they got the horses, they got the guys who are gonna gut it, cut it. And hang it for you. That's all you got to show up. You're thoroughly equipped, or you're going to go out on a job. So you're in construction, and you're going to show up with your bag of tools. You're a carpenter. There are certain things you need to have. You're thoroughly equipped, right, to frame the house. Or you're a sheetrocker. You come with your screw guns, and you come with your screws, and you come with your tape, and you come with your sheetrock. You're thoroughly equipped. So Paul tells us that so that you're mature, you can do all the good works God asks you to do, the Word of God equips you to do it all. I don't know if you realize what a resource you have here. You you want to know how to do things God's way, this book tells you. That's what he's saying. Again, no mention of a council, no no mention of a pope, no, no mention of the magisterium of the church. We come to Galatians 1, 8, and 9, and Paul says what? That's a passage where he says, if if someone comes to you, even if I or an angel of the Lord comes and delivers to you another gospel than the one I first gave to you, let them be damned to hell forever. Let them be anathema. So Paul said, listen, I I delivered this message to you. So if I five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road, I come back to you and say, you Galatians, wait a second. I, I, no, no, I, no, no. Here's how you're saved. He said, let me be anathematized because I delivered to you which was given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that? That we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel message. And you need to know that that message has been changed in many places. And so people come along, oh, I, I had this vision This this angel Moroni, okay? Oh, Gabriel, have you ever noticed how Islam and Mormonism are so close? Gabriel came, and I had this vision, and this is what it says. And I say, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, you have a different gospel because you have a different God, and you have a different way. This book tells me. Okay, we're going to look at one of the objections to that, which is, not Paul, you know Paul's going to invented Christianity. You guys know that, don't you? Like, nah, I don't think that's right. We'll get to that in just a moment. So our proofs. So what are what? Are, what this should. Why are these, meaning the solas? Sorry. Why are these still re- relevant? And in particular, sola scriptura. Here's four primary reasons. Now, there's probably more, but I only have so much time. Number one, Rome's response at Trent, the Council of Trent, in 1540. 42, And their view today. Second, is still what separates us and distinguishes us from sectarian groups. Objections to the doctrine, and what I would term—and I know somebody else probably have a better gale or another better term for it—the evangelical drift of our age. You know, and we'll come to those. So, what's Rome's response? Well, here we go: 1545 to 1563, codified at Trent. Scripture and tradition are both sources of authority, and that Scripture must be interpreted in light of tradition. Oh, well, hang on to that thought for a moment. Vatican I in 1870, Pope Pius IX said, I am tradition. You can read that. I mean, you can look it up and read it. He actually said that. I am, and this is the council where he is stated to be when he speaks ex cathedra, from the chair, he speaks the very words of Christ. Okay? Papal infallibility was established at the Vatican. And they would trace it back and say it's throughout the history of the church that you find it. And if you want to read a lot of history, go read the anti-Nicene fathers, and you'll find out that's not true. Vatican II, early 60s. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, notice that, tradition, scripture, and a teaching authority combined, right, our so linked and joined together, one cannot stand without the others, and that all together and each on its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute to the salvation of souls. Who has the teaching authority? The Pope, the Church. And by the Church, you don't mean all of us. Although some will argue that way. Read the Catechism, read the other documents. They mean Mother Church. Okay. So who, who tells you what tradition is and who interprets Scripture? Only the church. So we believe in sola scriptura. They believe in sola ecclesia. The church alone can tell you what scripture says. You might have good thoughts. You might even have a good point. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the church says this. And so you can read 1 John 5. You can read John 3.16. You can read Ephesians 2.8 and 9. You say, well, this is what it says. Say, well, that's your interpretation. The church says, there you go. That's why it's still the battle today. Secondly, it's still what separates us. What do we mean by a sectarian group? They alone have the truth. We, we are the true church. Whether Orthodox, Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists who follow Ellen G. White, you, you fill in the blank, right? Even Muslims, they're, they're the true ones. And everybody else, it, to enjoy salvation, you need to really be part of us. Now, that's, that's changed a little bit with the Catholic Church, but salvation is church or their group. They have other authorities in addition to the Bible. Right? Muslims revere the Bible where it hasn't been changed. Mormons believe the Bible as far as it's translated correctly. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that the Watchtower and Tract Society of Brooklyn, New York. Catholic Church says the Pope and tradition and the magisterium of the church. Right? Mormons have the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the Bible. Right? So you start thinking it through. Those groups, SDA historically had Ellen G. White in her revelations. So you add that to Scripture. Scripture plus fill in the blank. So that when you come to a Mormon and you say something, you say, well, yeah, but you know, we, as far as the Bible's is translated correctly, because you know there's some things here in Scripture. So, well, you know, you hand them a Greek New Testament, and you say, okay, show me in here where, where it's wrong. Well, what do you mean? I so, said, well, show me. I mean, obviously, you think that this is an error. I'd like to see where it is. I know, there, I know there's this little thing down here in the bottom, the a- apparatus tells us that there's some uh, deviations and words, but show me where it's wrong. What, what passage? Just where it disagrees with Mormon doctrine. Right? Well, my Muslim friend, you tell me the Bible's been corrupted? Hey, what do we do with that Isaiah text that was found you know, in Qumran, you know, dated from about 150, maybe 250 B.C., or maybe even a little older than that? Right? And it agrees with the Masoretic text, which is 1,100 years the other direction. So my Muslim friend, help me understand. If I read Isaiah, and Isaiah tells me from chapter 40 to 49, there's no other God, there's no other Savior, there's no other rock, there's no other Redeemer, right? And he is the one true God. He doesn't know of any other God. He help me understand how I, why I should accept the Quran, right? Why should I do that? Ah, kind of strange waters we find ourselves in here. What else? Objections to the doctrine. Literally, the, the many of the Catholic apologists will tell you this. It's unhistorical, it's unbiblical, and it's unworkable. It's unworkable because look at all the different denominations. You guys can't even agree amongst yourself. So it's untenable and unworkable. How do you know apart from your own fallible private judgment that what you believe is true? How do you, how do you know that? I mean, are you fallible? Are, are you infallible or fallible? So if you're fallible, how do you know Sola scripture is true, right? Sola Scripture has resulted in splintering the church into over 25,000 different groups that can't agree. What? Oh, as one would say, I, I forgot who I got this from, but Protestants generally do agree on how one is to interpret the Bible on your own, okay? On your own, do it yourself, All, right. All claim to believe what the Bible says, and yet no two of them agree what it is that the Bible says. Well, we can turn that on them, too. But anyway, number four, how can you be certain you are in the truth since all you have to go on is your own fallible private judgment that your church is right? right Grace Bible Church, Manhattan Bible, or Wilson Community, or Shields Valley. You know, what, how, how do you know? And so how do you know you picked the right denomination? How do you know you shouldn't be Methodists like my cousins, right. You know, or Presbyterians. How do you know that? Or the first church of what's happening now. Right, yeah. right. So, What's our response? Well, first, it is historical. Not hysterical, it is historical, okay? Because you have men such as Clement, and Ignatius, and Tertullian, and Justin, and Augustine, and Cyril, and Basil, and others, who argued for inerrancy of scripture. And they quoted from hundreds, if not thousands of verses. In fact, you could take from the early fathers and almost build your New Testament out of everything that they said where they quote scripture, and they tell you scripture has not erred, does not err, cannot err. Why? Because it's the very breath of God. Hmm. didn't say anything about church tradition. Oh, yeah, they did. Regula fide, the rule of faith, which has been handed down, which is not contrary to scripture, but is reflective of scripture. Okay? So there's tradition rightly understood. It has been the holding of the church. Okay? How do we know? I would say to my Catholic friend, how do you know your private interpretation of Rome documents and scriptures correct against the private interpretation of other Roman Catholics? You know, not all Catholics agree. If you don't believe me, just look at what Nancy Pelosi believes, right? And the other Catholics who, who are in Washington, D.C. You think they really believe what the church teaches? Ha ha ha. Harry Reid was a Mormon. You think he believes what the Mormon church teaches? I don't think so, right? If, you can't, if I can't trust my ability to understand the Bible and the church history, then how do I know I'm interpreting Matthew 16 and 2,000-year pedigree Rome correctly? How can I be certain that it's Rome who's God's true and fallible? How can I ever be certain that the true and interpreter is the Eastern Orthodox, and Mormon church watchtower? Okay. See, it cuts both ways. You're telling me I can't, with my own reasoning, sit down and look at Scripture and be sure but with your, own, with your own private interpretation, you will tell me the Roman pontiff can speak infallibly, and Roman history has been true for 2,000 years. That's heads you win and tails I lose. right? Kind of logical thing you need to take Gail's class on that. Or are you teaching logic? You're teaching logic. Okay. you got to do that. So what about this? Actually, if all of us use the principle of sola scriptura, we would, with few exceptions, arrive at near unanimity and what the Bible teaches regarding the essentials of the truth. Do you, do you realize we're talking about the essentials of the faith? We're, we're, not, we're not talking about whether you should wear robes. Your church should have stained glass and all the other things. We're talking about the fundamentals, the essentials. We're in agreement with, historically, whether Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Presbyterian, right, Reformed, Christian Reformed, United Christian Reformed, right, fill it, fill it in. On those key things, it's only been in the last however many years, deviation from liberal Protestantism. But explain to me, if you're from one of these other churches, how you guys are so different. How the the Catholic Church is so different from the Mormon Church, but because you both claim to be true. And both of you claim to have a prophet or somebody who speaks new revelation for God. How how come you're so different? There's very little agreement with you guys. How can you be certain that you're in truth since all you have to go on is your own fallible private judgment that Rome is right? How do you know? How do you know? That's just your interpretation, like everybody else's. And how do you know apart from your fallible interpretation that you picked the correct infallible interpreter? Right? How do you do that? So, no offense, this sounds like right back at you, right? You have to think about that. The bottom line, this is Eric Svensson said, the primary objection, a self-refuting proposition, is itself a self-refuting proposition, right? It is. It is what it is. So let's see if I get it right. I'm supposed to believe you, but you're fallible. But I can't believe me because I'm fallible, right? I don't think it works that way. So, so what do we have? Well, one thing I can be sure of is the text hasn't changed, right? I, I, I don't know. I mean, Gail can correct me on this, but I don't think we've we found any, any new manuscripts, old or new, that challenge anything that we have here. This is the book, right? It's the book. It hasn't changed. Oh, the covers may change. You know, beat up like mine in different languages, but the book's the book. So we do have that. So objections to the doctrine from liberal Protestants: the Bible isn't the word of God. It contains the word of God. Some some teach, actually try to maintain, (laughs) man, they try to maintain that the early church did not believe in inerrancy. It's like, I'm not sure what they're reading, but um, the Bible isn't a scientific document and isn't totally accurate in its history. And yet, the more we discover, the more we look, the more what do we find? We find the book is true, and you can depend on it. And it's proven true, right? We would expect that, why? Because it claims to be true. There's a couple others I didn't put on there. Paul created Christianity, to which I would say, oh, check the Gospels, and then check what Paul said. Look what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says Jesus is what, okay? Acts 4.12, we just, Aaron, Joe quoted it today. There's no other name on heaven by which, who said that? Peter. So Peter, Paul, and Jesus, that's a that's a nice trio to agree with. Some would say uh, we don't really know who who wrote all the books. So how do we know? You know, there's debate about who wrote this and who wrote that. I remember some years ago my counterpart in Wilsall at the Lutheran Church and uh, so for really, Lutheran sorry I'm picking on you because that's that's my former heritage also. And we and we uh, we were talking actually we were supposed to do that thing you know with the promise keepers and you should get together and pray and I was like, all right, I'll get that. And I, I, liked, I liked my counterpart. We worked on the fire, fire department together. Good guy, good guy. Uh, bad theology, but a good guy. And uh, so we were talking one day, and, uh, <clears throat> and actually we were discussing the issue of homosexuality and you know, all those other things. And uh, he made this statement. Paul is homophobic and, and patriarchal. And, and he said, if you don't believe he says, just, just, just read Romans and, and the pastoral epistles. And I started to chuckle uh, because I, I, I knew where he went to school. It's a school I had interviewed and didn't go to. I went to going to a Baptist school. And I said, Paul, let me ask you this. Do you, do you believe Paul wrote the pastoral epistles? He goes, oh no, he didn't write them. We don't know who wrote those. I said, well, let me ask you this. So based on the pastoral epistles, you believe Paul was homophobic and patriarchal in his view towards women? Yeah. I said, no. let, let me, let me re- repeat my question. You, you believe, based on the pastoral epistles, that Paul was homophobic and patriarchal towards women? Yeah. And he sat back in his chair and he said, uh, I see your point. I said, yeah. It's kind of interesting. You don't believe the guy wrote the three letters in the first place, but you use those as a basis to try to prove your point. Okay? Th- think through what many of these individuals will say. and most of their arguments, you can turn, and that's not to give you apologetics. That's Danny's job in his ministry. You, but you turn around and say, "Well, I say Just take this literally. So you're telling me this based on this, but you don't believe this. Nice try. Nice try. We have, we have good proof. Paul wrote those, but, but you can see where we're going to go with that. What about the objections of our culture? And I've got to hurry through these. It's just your opinion. Okay, and you have your opinion. So how, how, how do we adjudicate? Is there not a standard? Is there not a way historically, practically, we can look and begin to compare? Are you saying everything's morally equivalent? I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the comment <laughs> that was made the other day. Some cultures... Teach you to love your neighbors yourself, others teach you to eat them, right? Do you want to tell me those are morally equivalent? I don't think so, right? So, like the bumper sticker, can't we just coexist? And you remember what the whole explanation for that is? You know, the people that you're really after are the people with the cross and probably the ones with the six-pointed star. But the rest of them, you're given a pass to, right? It's like Anthony Skinner's bumper sticker says, they can't all be true. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be true. Because if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, game over. Right. So might be your opinion. Yeah, but my opinion has some historical basis to it. What about yours? What's yours? Your standard keeps changing. How do I know? Just listen to any politician from one year to the next. Standard changes. Right? There's just ancient documents like all others. Oh, and that means they're bad? So I should walk into the first day of philosophy. I don't know why I have to take this stupid class because you just base this on ancient documents. Who cares about Plato and Aristotle? I mean, what's Athens got to do with Jerusalem, right? See how far that's going to get you. Well, you need to say, why? It's just somebody's opinion. So here's, here's my $400. Just give me my A and you'll be happy, I'll be happy, and I won't cause you any problems in class. Who, who do you think you are to say that you're right? Christianity is the only way? Because it says, I, I'm just telling you what the book says. Right? There is no other name under heaven by which mankind must be saved. I didn't say that. I, I, I didn't say I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Pretty good documentation. That's, that's exactly what he said. Everything evolves. The world, people, societies, laws, beliefs. Okay, so I take it you like the environment, right? You like the environment. So why do you care? Why are you crying over these grizzly bears? They've been on here longer than we have. They haven't learned how to evolve. Tough. Bear rug. <laughs> oh well, you uh. want well, stop and think about it for a moment. It evolves. They're not smart enough after how many millions of years to evolve to the point where they can cohabitate with us. I mean, coexist. Sorry, That's the wrong statement. Coexist with us? Haven't figured that out yet? Then obviously, obviously, they're not the fittest of the species. Correct? Oh yeah. Well, he saying, no. You know, we've learned more. So, Oh, so your learning keeps evolving. So if your learning keeps evolving, who am I supposed to believe? Carl Sangan, who died, you know, what, 10 years, 15 years ago? And could have swore by him, this is everything what it is, but now 15 years later, we've got something else. And by the way, well, maybe he would have changed too if had he lived. Right, come on, where, where, where do you stop with that? Again, honestly, scripture doesn't tell you how to clean water, right? But it tells you who created it. The Bible is homophobic, patriarchal, racist, and the guy of the Bible is the most self-centered, sadistic tyrant that has ever existed, wiping out the entire civilization. So say the new atheist, right? That's the God you want to serve, right? You're gonna have to to prepare for that. What does scripture tell us? Well, it tells me, you know what, you deserve to die and so do I. But okay, that, that may not make him happy. What about the evangelical drift? Sufficiency of the word, the regulative normative principles and our pragmatic approach to ministry and missions. I think this is where, this troubles me more than what society does. Because I live my life based on society, I should base it on the Word of God. What the sufficiency of the Word. Is the Word sufficient to address our hard issues? right? Does it give me wisdom and principles of how to live my life and how to be changed? Let the word washing regeneration wash over me, to change me. Or do I have to find that in some secular textbook somewhere? Again, I'm not saying there might not be truth in some of those. Simply saying, where do I start? Where's the ultimate authority when it tells me who man, what he or she is, right? You, even those in the church are starting to say, well, you know, you, you, you know, the God of Islam and the God of the Bible, they're the same God. It's like, God, better read your book. Better read Isaiah forty forty-nine. It makes it pretty clear they're not. But, okay, so, well, you know, who cares about gender? You know, it's kind of fluid because, you know, we're all evolving. Hey, that's not what Scripture says. That's not what Scripture says at all. Scripture said God created them, male and female, created he them. And I know it's a trite old joke, but when he created Adam, he created Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? He didn't. And he didn't create Eve and Susan, right? Adam and Eve. That's that's who he created them to be. And he lays down, because he is alone as king, omnipotent, incomparable he has the right to say this is my creation this is how it needs to be and this is why not because I'm a killjoy God created sex not Hugh Hefner okay God created it but it's within these bounds this is good this is very good but when you step outside of God's pathway that's when things go very bad and so I'm in a process of bringing it all back and making it all new so, I just mentioned the word is sufficient for us. Secondly, the regulative and normative principles. And in church history class, we'll get to this, but really, it's centered on worship. And regulative principles said if it's appointed by command or example, okay, if it's not, right, we can't do it. So, if instruments, organ, those things, that's not in the Bible, can't do it. The other side said, wait a second, if Scripture doesn't say you can't have an organ, you can. And we have taken that to filter it down to so many things. The Bible doesn't say you can't have a beer. Well, it doesn't say you can't either. It just mentions that people drink wine. Oh, whoa, oh, oh. This oh. so is we get in all this fight about freedom and what we can and can't do. How about wisdom? How about let's not, not stress normative and regulative? How about if we come to Scripture and look for principles to understand what it would have us do? right? Remember James 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, but let him ask in faith, not being double-minded. Oh, let's couple that with Proverbs 2. You say, okay, God, I prayed for wisdom. I believe you. Send it down. Give me wisdom. And God said, hey, read, read the second chapter of Proverbs. Seek for her, cry out for her, dig for her like a hidden treasure. Then you will get wisdom. And it means the book, Right? So wisdom isn't God's just letting it down on a chain. God's saying, get in the book. And what's it say? It says, as we looked at Luther briefly today in class, you're the most free man of all in your justification, but in your sanctification, you are the dutiful servant, slave of all. You are free in Christ. You're not under the law. You're not under constraints. But, the law of Christ, which is what love your neighbor as yourself and love God with your entire being. Well, that, that constrains, does it not? So I don't live for me, I'm supposed to live for you. Oh, man, we don't seem to want to do that. It's hard. Those are active verbs there in Proverbs too: Seek, shout, cry, search. That isn't couch potato time. Let's okay? get up off your hiney and go for it. Gail would say, go harder, go home, is what it says. And lastly, our pragmatic approach to ministry and missions. Oh, man. If it works, do it. I mean, we can, we can market the church. We can get more people. I, just, there's a, gr- a great quote in Christianity Today today about Luther going off on relics. And then just beneath it, down there, they're advertising a book, how to fill, an article, how to fill your church on Easter Sunday. I mean, I started laughing. I said, What are we laughing about? I said, Well, look at this. Here, <laughs> Luther's saying relics? You know? He said, How was it that we got 18 apostles buried in Germany and Jesus only had 12? I mean, okay. You know. Stor- those of you in church history, course, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> it's like, in this article, says, Here's how you're going to fill your, your church on Easter. Do you, re- you re- realize, those of you going to the missions, the whole contextualization issue in another culture? contextualize, our culture has done that, or we've done that in the church. We've decided to look at why people don't come to church as though some, pay, I'm not saying people can't tell you to be more friendly or more loving and more caring, and that when people come in, regardless of what they look like or smell like, you come in and we're going to love you to Jesus. But our churches have forgot why we do church. And it's not so we make our building and our message and everything so so watered down, and people come in and they're not offended by anything. The church is for you. You're the church, right? You're the church. And when you gather, you gather to worship and to be edified and be sent out to evangelize and disciple. That's the church at its best. Read, read Acts 2. They committed themselves daily, habitually to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to prayer, and the breaking of bread. Where in there does it talk about going out and asking what a bunch of pagans think church ought to be like? Nothing in Scripture about it. But it tells you how to be, how to love your neighbor, how to be a light in your neighborhood, so people want to, hey, where do you go to church? We're kind of looking for a church. I haven't been to church since I was a kid. Hey, why don't you come with me? I think you'll like it. Because our pastor preaches from the word. Oh, I'm just going to tell you, he might make you uncomfortable sometimes. Just so you know, he's not picking on you, he's picking on all of us. Because you open the word of God, and if he talked about drunkenness today and you're drunk, don't be surprised. I didn't tell him that you're drunk, okay? All right? You come to church. should be comforted, and, if, and those who are comfortable should be afflicted. That's what the church is all about. And God, praise God, if you non Christian friends who want to come, and you invite them, they want to come, great. But we're not changing what we do so that they like it right? So I, I got news for you. I don't like hell, but it's in the book, and I'm going to preach it. Right? And so we contextualize the church. And so Sola Scriptura tells what does scripture tell me the church is? What does it tell me a disciple is? What does it tell me my responsibility as a husband, a father, a dad, a brother, a sister, a mom, a cousin, a daughter? What does it tell me? That is my guiding principle. See, beloved, the reason, I, I think one reason why many Catholics not just from their own apologists and their own own tradition. Poo-poo, sola scriptura, is because you and I have been a bad example of it. Okay? And we need to reclaim the mantle, and we need to live it. So this is an anniversary we're celebrating because you realize men and women died for these truths. The truths you're going to hear over the next few weeks, sola scriptura, sola fide, right? People died for those that gave their life and they still give it today because they believe this book is true and it points us to the one true God and the one person by whom all must be saved and that is Jesus Christ and that's on us it's not on them, it's not on the liberals it's not on the Catholic Church or the Orthodox and Mormon, that's on us beloved, to grasp this and live it Let them see our light. Let them see our love for the Lord. Let them see our love for the Lord of the Word. And that would compel them to come home to their true home. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and as Danny has said, all all we have is what you've provided for us. And when I say it, only what you provided for us. It is all we need. You gave us your son. We don't need wealth. We don't need a country. We we, we, we don't need all the trappings of society, prestige, privilege. All we need is you. And yet in that, you've made it possible for us to be in fellowship, not only with you, but with each other. Because you saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And not just relation, husband and wife, parent and child, but brothers and sisters in Christ. We need each other to bear one another's burdens. We need each other to exhort one another unto love and good deeds, to be patient and kind and caring, self-controlled. We need each other to smooth off the rough spots, encourage us when we're low, rein us in when we're too exuberant, You've given us all, all this to us in this book. And so, Father, keep us from worshiping it. Sometimes we're accused of that. But help us to worship the one who it reveals. Help us be true to its principles. Help us not to be lazy, but to be st- active students to to ferret out those rich nuggets of truth and wisdom to apply it to life and so whether we feel we have the freedom to uh, to have a glass of wine or not have a glass of wine or uh, do this activity or do that or play the organ or not play we're going to do it because we want to please you and we're going to do it though with an attitude that accepts your brother and sister who has a difference of opinion because we've worked through the scripture we realize these are sometimes are just preferences And we're just trying to walk the best we can in the power of the Spirit. Give us that grace and mercy. And Father, let our non-Christian friends, regardless if they are in a church or not in a church, whatever it might be, let them see in us, Jesus, the hope of glory. Give them eyes to see as they open the book, as we give them a Bible, we give them a tract, we give them a New Testament. Open their eyes to see your beauty, your greatness, your grandeur. And we ask this for their sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.